This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. These days, I can't help but smile every time I eat avocado. I mean, why not smile? It's a delicious and nutritious fruit, especially in South America, where some avocado varieties are larger than my hand, juicy when fresh, and always in cheap abundance. But I'm not simply smiling because I enjoy my food. I'm smiling because it might just be impossible for a Western millennial to eat avocado without recalling the ridiculous avocado toast meme of 2017 when millionaire property mogul Tim Gurner blamed our rampant consumption of smashed avocados on toast for my generation's inability to buy starter homes. That ridiculous declaration was a perfect flashpoint for mockery though, not just because of its surface disconnect from the realities of the housing market, job market, and student debt industry post-2008 recession, and let's face it, pre-recession too, but also because of the contradictions it highlighted around complaints against millennials in general. Older and younger millennials, after all, and I'm an older millennial, otherwise called Gen Y, if it's not obvious, had been putting up all decade with accusations of how we were killing various industries, killing breakfast cereal, killing department stores, killing golf, killing sit-down restaurants, killing traditional diamond mining, and of course, killing the housing market. There's probably a whole essay to be written about the rhetorical similarities between accusing us of cancelling everyone and killing everything. But the more important point here is simply that we were already being criticized heavily for not spending, and then out came Gurner with his nonsense claim that we were in fact spending far too much, too frivolously, on smashed avocados on toast. But by now, fellow shop talkers, you should know full well that we're not going to spend this episode making fun of Gurner's ridiculous comment, or even the clickbait trend that's been treating millennials like cold-blooded industry killers for a decade. No, we're going to flip the script here and reflect on how my generation has also been known to make a careless declarative statement or two. Because just as my generation is being blamed for ruining the ability of other generations to continue to profit from their assets in an economy that helped a few of them lock up the vast majority of societal wealth, Gen Y and the younger millennials stand strikingly united in their conviction over how awful something else is. Social media. And yes, Facebook, now Meta, and Twitter have had an awful impact, especially when it comes to their role in reshaping everyday democracy, along with WhatsApp, which is now owned by the former, and which has been affecting South American democracies with similar intensity to the damage done by recent US presidents who went around deciding on foreign policy and compromising state security via tweet. What a world.
What has allowed all of these sites to do so much damage is a question that has been analyzed in many dimensions, and there is a bounty of excellent research and commentary that I will recommend on this episode in due course. Broadly speaking, this analysis explores how social media is an amplifier by nature, and how, because of some extremely skewed notions of who has a right to be amplified, and because an unpaying user base is not the main client of any given private service, this amplification best serves political interests that thrive on social division, strident rhetoric, and a general fear of imminent threat to oneself and one's property. But what I want to focus on is what we give up when we simply reduce the issue to Twitter is the worst or Facebook is ruining X. Because when we allow ourselves such an easy and externalized target, we risk letting technological determinism shape our understanding of ourselves, our communities, and human behavior in general. We have to be willing to take a closer look at the ways that our use of these tools, more than the tools themselves, is creating an illusion of agency out of an abundance of unhealthy choices instead of helping us to build a better world. In other words, if there's one thing that millennials should be trying to kill, it's our quickness to throw blame around, even if that's the way we've been treated by the media for a whole exhausting decade. Come on, we can do better, can't we? It's that mental flip after all, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, podcast edition, and today we're threading through some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the tweet. Okay, so let's get the ruin of democracy out of the way. We had such high hopes for social media, didn't we? In 2018, MIT Technology Review revisited its glowing 2013 cover story, Big Data Will Save Politics, a claim that had significantly soured after the early promise of using digital networks to foment more Arab Spring-styled democratic resistance to oppressive states. Gideon Litchfield's Why the Pessimists Are Winning for Now neatly summarizes many of the abuses of new technology in recent years, the rise of fake news through aggressive comment bots and website algorithms, the express sale of our political data to companies and other third parties whose priority is persuasion, not truth and significant concerns about how increasing artificial intelligence and deep fake technologies will make average consumers even less prepared to differentiate between real and manipulative content going forward. Other publications are even more dire about where technology has taken us. The Journal of Democracy is unfortunately 
and ironically behind paywall. But if you can access Ronald J. Deverts' The Road to Digital Unfreedom, Three Painful Truths About Social Media from January 2019, you'll note that his exploration of the role played by digital life in the recent resurgence of neo-fascistic governments and citizen mindsets around the world is not simply the provenance of Facebook, Twitter, and the like, but also Google itself, a behemoth of a company that has also been criticized for its mishandling of fake news and incendiary social commentary. Heck, just a few months ago, I was trying to Google the exact wording of an excellent quotation by Charles Dudley Warner, which reads, It is fortunate that each generation does not comprehend its own ignorance. We are thus enabled to call our ancestors barbarous. At the time, like any good, lazy Googler, I could only remember a few keywords from this splendid observation, and so I typed, quotation, ignorant, barbarous, into the search bar. And the immediately foregrounded search result, followed by another half dozen similarly toxic web links, was to a scathing op-ed indictment of the Jewish people as dishonest and barbarous. I immediately left a comment for Google staff, using a feedback function that has been added to the main search feed, but I couldn't help but feel that it was a futile act because I remember the problem with anti-Semitic and racist search terms being a huge point of mainstream discourse a decade ago, and it's beyond disheartening to see how little progress we've made in improving the resilience and social responsibility of our digital algorithms ever since. But let's put a pin in that broader Google angle for a second and take a look at one of the issues that has been treated as specific to Twitter, yet which absolutely ties into the bigger problem facing our attempts at fostering a healthy political discourse. As a writer of speculative fiction, I have been thoroughly exposed to commentary about how Twitter has ruined publishing and supposedly young adult literature in particular. In July of 2021, Nicole Brinkley posted an essay, Did Twitter Break YA?, which argues that Twitter has served as a very misleading water cooler for the publishing industry. It's a platform on which authors, agents, and publishers are enmeshed in a game of public-facing networking and literary promotion, and also a platform that supposedly balances the playing field by allowing readers a better shot at being heard on an equal level. What this has amounted to, arguably, is a staging ground that rewards drama and criticism as the loudest forms of online engagement, the ones that receive the most page views and click-throughs, and therefore drive market trends. Literary Twitter and quote-unquote cancel culture are often invoked in the same breath for this reason as flash-in-a-pan outrage over a specific book element or author statement on Twitter or also far more serious claims about author misconduct, especially in the realm of sexual harassment and assault, or racism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia, 
compels major industry players to make difficult decisions about whether or not they are going to continue to represent a given book or creator going forward. Although people outside of publishing might be inclined to consider these issues mere tempests in a teapot, of interest only to folks reading and writing in related genres, I would strongly suggest that there is a powerful link between the human behaviors made manifest in literary publishing controversies and our broader struggles with the shape of our supposedly democratic societies. And they're not new struggles, but we've perhaps allowed ourselves to think they are for the same reason that the aforementioned claim by Charles Dudley Warner feels so very splendid to me. We forget our history because we're too easily flattered by the assumption that we are more enlightened by virtue of living in the present. And so if we ever act boorish and barbarous ourselves, it must be the tools we're using and not something more intrinsic to human beings. Whether we're talking about mainstream publishing or Western-style democracies, the mistake we make with services like Twitter, Meta, WhatsApp, and Google is the same, and it has two dimensions. The first is that we superficially buy into the idea that these are truly equalizing platforms, and the second is that we don't actually believe this to be true. And you can tell that we don't believe it, because a great many of us are simply using all the rhetorical tricks they know to try to boost their online personas and rise to the top of these unjust spheres. In other words, when we say things like, Twitter is the worst, there really isn't much difference between that claim and the claim that we are the worst. Because without its user base, without people actively engaging with whatever new mechanisms the application puts in place, Twitter would simply be a bit of inert code in the background of our offline lives. The machine can be horrible. It cannot be horrible without its operators. For instance, when a certain person was elected as POTUS in 2016, I made an express promise not to mention his name online and to avoid reposting or retweeting any content centered on him. I encouraged others to follow suit, and not just with his name, but with many other names that I knew were being uttered so often online that of course the algorithms on related websites and news feeds were going to prioritize clickbait and spin cycles that centered these people, companies, and ideas. Why wouldn't they, if users were engaging with that content? Why give up the ad revenue that comes with the most popular hashtags? Now, some would claim that you have to write and say these names, or else how will people know what's being done in the world? If a certain person holds a certain prominent political office, why shouldn't we be fixating on them personally? If a certain person holds a certain prominent political office, why shouldn't we be fixating on them specifically? I disagree, but I also understand that we have so little civic training to prepare us for our work as global citizens that of course we can't imagine disseminating the most urgent and democracy-enhancing news items any other way. For this reason, it's very difficult for people to imagine signal-boosting and otherwise uplifting only those stories that focus, for instance, on the people, communities, and environments most directly affected by the actions of a given person, corporation, or state entity. 
Even worse, the second part of the problem means that we don't want to learn how to be more democratic citizens, not if it means that we have to signal boost content differently, because it's not to our personal benefit. Because if we center a person in a position of power, and if we participate in making them the trendiest part of any given news cycle, then not only does their name rise as a popular brand in our media networks, but our name also gets attached to that rise as a major critic of their actions. And so we stand to benefit from their toxicity. Fellow atheists who experienced the new atheism movement of the early 2000s will know exactly what I mean because a few names in particular, Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, were routinely thrown into clickbait article titles because directly challenging people who were perceived to be giants in our industry was well known to be the best way to try to rise in the ranks yourself. The same is also true for major scientists, such as Newton, Darwin, Einstein, and Hawking, names used as clickbait for modern physics and biology articles even when their work is obviously going to be somewhat incomplete compared to our body of knowledge today. Why then do we have headlines boasting about what Darwin never knew or what Einstein got wrong? Simply because researchers gain prestige by having their names connected to major historical icons, especially in a way that positions the former as superior in some way to the latter. Twitter is the worst. Meta is the worst. Google is the worst. But in large part, this is true because in all of these applications, we as human beings are scrambling to gain some level of personal authority, stability, and economic opportunity. We embrace tools that purport to be the great levelers, champions of democratic discourse, and we play the unjust and divisive games we know that they're really playing too. How we use technology and to what extent the technology itself is the problem has always been a serious issue ripe for heated political debate. Fiction was supposedly the ruination of society in other centuries. Reading newspapers or watching films, then TV, was sure to rot our brains and degrade our capacity for meaningful discourse. Now it's digital social media in which our individually undemocratic behaviors are wreaking havoc on any hope of a better world ahead. And whatever happens to Meta, Twitter, WhatsApp, and Google in the coming years, we can be sure that this same human scramble for power and authority in lieu of more constructive forms of personal agency will play out on the next platform too. At least, if we don't start taking more responsibility for the roles that our consumer habits and broader socioeconomic disparities are playing in how we choose to perform ourselves and to interact with one another online. So here are some headlines I'd really like to see one day. Millennials kill laying blame on simplistic targets. Millennials kill falling prey to technological determinism. Millennials kill forgetting the science of human behavior in crowds and around perceived representatives of group authority. On the day when any of those headlines would no longer be fake news 
or mere clickbait, you can bet that I'll be reading those articles in full with a glorious smile and probably some celebratory smashed avocado on toast. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferras is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, Wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Thank you.